afternoon good evening i'm dove tusman you're on equal footing we're going to talk about the ethics of assassination tonight you heard me right is there such thing as a righteous kill this is not theoretical we're not talking about 19 the efforts 42 efforts to to kill hitler between the early 1930s and 1945 we're talking about the here and now Talking about in particular Vladimir Putin. This is an issue that Senator Lindsey Graham brought to the fore about a month ago. Sean Hannity on Fox News gave it some oxygen in the media. Is there an appropriate time for the United States or another Western power to target a totalitarian and malevolent force in the international stage, a war criminal? Is it ever, is there ever such thing as a righteous kill as sanctioned by a state? We're joined by one of the foremost experts on this question. She's been quoted in the media places like the Washington Post and elsewhere recently as this topic has gained attention. Professor Rachel Van Landingham. She's a retired lieutenant colonel. She's a national security law expert and a former judge advocate in the U.S. Air Force. And during Professor Van Landingham's military career, she served as a senior legal advisor on the international law of armed conflict. She's acted as a military prosecutor. She's been a criminal defense attorney, an appellate defense attorney, a nuclear surety inspector. She's been stationed in the United States, South Korea, and Italy with deployments as well in the Middle East. She was the legal advisor for international law at the headquarters of the United States Central Command where she advised on operation and international legal issues related to armed conflicts. At Central Command, her nickname was Agent Provocateur. She's got strong opinions. She's willing to state them. I love that. And Professor Van Landingham, and I hope she'll be okay with me calling her Professor V, as I understand some of her students call her, because it's a tough last name like mine. She's also the mom of two amazing boys and one dog named Pretzel, a pandemic puppy, so... Serious bio, light side as well. Professor Van Landingham lives in L.A. She's a member of the Texas Bar. Professor V, welcome to Equal Footing. Doe, thank you so much for having me. It's truly my honor. Professor Van Landingham, are you okay if I, okay if I call you Professor V on the show? I think you gave me some, pre, some permission in one of our pregames. I want to make sure that's all right. Absolutely. Please do. Believe me, I've been called a lot worse. Yeah, you actually shared one of your nicknames at, at Central Command as well before the show. I won't, I won't be the one that shares that. Maybe on the show you'll, you'll, you'll share it if you feel comfortable. Let's set the stage first of all because there's a lot of places we, we could go when it comes to the concept of the righteous kill. And just take a step back. There's what I'm sure some people know of as the trolley problem, right? This is, this is the problem that philosopher Philip Afoot Posited in 1967. Anyone who's taken a philosophy class in undergrad knows what this is about. The idea is there's a train going down a track. You have the opportunity to switch the train from one track to another. You go on one track, you kill one person. You go on the other track, you kill five people. You're already headed for the one. Excuse me, you're headed towards the five. Pardon me. 
that's the default. And is it ethical to flip that switch to, to switch to the track where you kill the one person? And the way that's usually framed is util- – Tony, we're not going to get too wonky, but I just want to frame this for, for everyone. It's usually framed as the debate between utilitarianism where you know you think about, okay, well, yes, you switch the train to the track where it's going to kill one person because – that it's better to save one, to, to kill one life to save five, and that's utilitarian. It's looking at the kind of value itself of each person, almost like a unit, and aggregating the overall moral value of the act. And then on the other side, and pardon me, philosophers who are listening, because I'm dumbing this down, I know, but there's the deontological view, and that's that an action is intrinsically good or evil, and the action that you're taking when you make that switch, even if the default was can it kill more people, is an intrinsically evil act. Therefore, you can't make the switch and you shouldn't do that even though you're saving lives. Now, how does that relate to the subject at hand? Well, Professor V, I know you're more familiar with this than I am, but there's the famous case in 1939, right before Hitler's invasion of France. A German carpenter, a simple guy named George George Elser, left a bomb in a Munich beer hall because he felt that Hitler was going to invade France and he knew of his ambitions to annihilate the the Jews and to cause havoc in Europe. By 13 minutes, he missed his target. Hitler was in the beer hall but left early. But he was right. And he, unfortunately, that bomb did take other lives. But George Elser is now considered a hero in uh, in Germany. Angela Merkel has called him a national hero. He has been, uh, there are streets named after him and so forth. So this this trolley problem makes its way into international politics makes its way into the decision of, is it ever ethical? Is there such thing as a righteous kill? Um, now, in that case, that was an individual. That was one man who tried to, now there were 42 attempts against Hitler's life over time. But then that the example I just gave was not state-sanctioned. It was an individual acting alone. Here we're talking about state-sanctioned assassination. And Professor V, that's my first question. Is there a fundamental ethical difference between an individual taking an act to kill a, a war criminal uh, to assassinate someone that they believe is is uh, you know engaged in genocide, for example, versus a state sanctioned sanctioned act of assassination. Well, there is a lot there to unpackage, but just in general, there is a qualitative and quantitative as well as a legal difference between actions that a state takes on behalf of its citizens and action a private individual takes. Uh, police officers uh, often do things that are usually prohibited by, uh, by private individuals, but are allowed to be engaged in by police in their appropriate law enforcement role. And of course, we know all about how police have acted outside of their, you know, abused that power, but they do have that power because they're acting on behalf of the state. We've given them that authority. So absolutely, I think there's a difference between the private and the public sphere, and there's different laws that apply in each. So this isn't anything new to U.S. politics, though, right? I mean, we know that there were attempts by uh, the, the U.S. intelligence was involved in plots to kill Hitler, certainly after Pearl Harbor. Uh, we know that uh, there were plots under Eisenhower when Alan Dulles was the head of the uh, head of the CIA or head of the Na- international security apparatus to kill uh, Premier Zhen Zhao in Lai in uh, China. There were many documented attempts by national intelligence agencies to kill Fidel Castro. Um, so haven't we 
Having we sure, done this before, sure. why so are we seriously considering them now? Well, so let's look at, let's distinguish some of those examples that you gave, okay? Um, and we're going to talk about political assassination, assassination, and then we're going to talk about targeted killings that are lawful acts of war um, that go after individuals because uh, nations that are at war are allowed to target individuals, such as the United States targeting the admiral that was the leader of the uh, the commander of the uh, Japanese Navy. Uh, during, the world, during World War II, during international armed conflict, the United States targeted his airplane over the Pacific and killed him. It was very successful. That was not assassination. That was a discriminatory, it should be discriminate, the United States was aiming at him because he was a lawful target under the laws and customs of war as a military officer, even if he was the top um, officer for his, for his Navy. He was a legitimate military objective um, and lawfully, lawfully killed by so the United Profe- States. Professor V, pardon the interruption before we get to the other examples. I just want listeners to really understand this was an education for me in some of our pregame. If we're at war, the United States, it, it, with another uh, country, it's it's legal for us to target the killing of a of a of a military commander, uh, you know, even if they're you know in their in their car or sitting at dinner in a restaurant or or flying in this. Oh, even airport. if they're asleep, even better if they're Got asleep it. because then they're not fighting back against us. So let's go back. That's why your Hitler example. You gave two different ones. One, you, you, you gave, well, the United States, once we were at war against Nazi Germany, Hitler as the civilian leader, the leader of both his uh, government as well as the commander of his military was a legitimate military objective at that point. So it's not the realm of assassination during peacetime. It's not murder for political purposes that occurs during peacetime by a state, um, which is what it seems that, Senator Graham was advocating for either some kind of political assassination of President Putin. Um, but what he's advocating for is also an act of war. The United States as a government killed, targeted, and killed President Putin. We are declaring World War III, essentially, not declaring in legal terms as a declaration passed by both houses of Congress, um, but it's an act of war, and the current administration has done everything it can, it can to stay left of that. But, but we'll go, we can go back to that. Here's so going prof- back to the here, difference of... Yeah, hang on one second. Here's what Professor V is talking about when she's referring to Lindsey Graham's exhortation. We're going to go to some uh, NBC News coverage on this about a month ago. Also this morning, top Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is courting controversy for encouraging Russians to, quote, step up to the plate and assassinate Vladimir Putin. NBC senior Washington correspondent Hallie Jackson joins us with more on this story. Hey, Hallie, good morning. Hey, Hoda, good morning to you. This is a kind of political curveball at this extremely precarious moment with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Senator Lindsey Graham overnight, as the situation at that nuclear plant was escalating, calling on someone in Russia to, in his words, Take out Putin. Listen. Is there Brutus in Russia? The only way this ends, my friend, is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. Okay. So, first of all, it's so nice to be back in studio. We broadcast last several weeks from Dubai, and I'm sorry for listeners for the sound quality. I think we did some interesting shows from there, but, uh, boy, I'm glad to be back in our normal times. I'm not doing these shows at 3 in the morning and have the ability to get the support from Dimitri here and so forth in the studio. Now, first of all, sorry to sound pedantic, but just so everyone understands what 
Lindsey Graham's reference there, Professor V, uh, was. He's right. About, it, was, it sounds like it was actually to someone in Russia, exactly. right? Exactly. So he's be talking take, about Could Brutus. that be taken as the United States, right? Yeah, he's, he's, I mean, Brutus was obviously the, the senator in ancient Rome who turned on Julius right. Caesar and, and killed, uh, and exhorted a number of members of the Roman Senate to kill Julius Caesar on the Ides of March. The, the, he's encouraging, uh, what I, what many would see as a righteous act, uh, a righteous kill to go on from within the Russian state. Now, is, is that's an act of war? If he, if it was taken as him encouraging, right, and I hadn't actually heard that clip before, if he's encouraging the United States, right, stating a policy position the United States should be, um, and, and so here's where we get to the, I'm going to get wonky criminal law here because I am a criminal law professor. Someone that encourages or solicits an individual to commit a crime and that second individual commits it, that first individual is guilty for that actual crime. They're an accomplice, and so they're actually guilty of murder. So if Lindsey Graham is intentionally, you know, soliciting someone to kill President Putin, Lindsey Graham would be, I mean, under under standard criminal law, he would be, if he had the intent that that person actually do it, and that's why he, he made that statement. Um, so then you have a sitting senator that that's responsible for another head of state's Demise. So you're right in the very pedantic sense. It doesn't sound like in that statement he was saying the United States should go in and take out President Putin. Um, but you have to look at the position that he's in. He's a sitting senator um, encouraging the uh, the murder of another sitting head of state, a serial war criminal that that no one's going to shed any tears if, if that actually occurred. Um, but let's let's go back a moment to what we were talking about regarding political assassinations and U.S. Ben policy. Hammett, we're going to need to take our first break, but I think let's let's come back to that this this subtle but important difference between the exhortation for that to happen by an individual within uh, Russia for a coup to take place versus a direct state-sanctioned action. I wanted to just share with listeners in the research for this show, we came across uh, Robert Rockaway's work, who's a, a researcher, pretty well-known researcher, actually on Jewish the Jewish mafia in the United States, you know, Meyer Lansky in that period. And he has a great article that's being turned into a book called The Jewish Plot to Kill Hitler, uh, published recently in Tablet Magazine. And, and, and the FBI in 1933... Um, actively clamped down on an effort by a group of Jewish gangsters who spoke Yiddish who could get into Germany to preemptively kill who someone they knew was uh, not only an anti-Semite but a future um, uh, a future genocidal uh, maniac. So this this stuff is so complex. Call in, talk to Professor Van Landingham, world uh, world renowned expert on national security law. Uh, former retired, uh, retired lieutenant colonel, and we're talking about is there ever a righteous kill as sanctioned by the U.S. government? Should we be encouraging, in this case, the assassination of Vladimir Putin? You can call in and participate live by dialing 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. Please be a little patient if you're calling in. We'll, we'll get to you. And if you are wanting to do to send in a text, you're shy about being on the air, text your comment or question to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. We'll be right back with Professor Van Landingham on Equal Footing. 
song after the break that's a january 1941 composition by irving berlin and when that man is dead and gone yes that's a reference to satan with a mustache adolf hitler exhortation effectively to assassinate adolf hitler prior to pearl harbor written in january 1941 pearl harbor history lesson december 1941 all right equal footing is brought to you let's change gears for a sec by docuvax DocuVax is a very cool digital medical locker you can access on your iPhone or Android or laptop, and it allows you to take all your medical records, drop them into this HIPAA-compliant digital locker, and have them organized and interpreted by doctors 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Gone are days of kind of tracking down your old medical records, figuring out how to share test results with a new healthcare provider, a new doctor, a new school, a new business that you're involved in, whatever it might be. Get all your medical records in one place. Have them organized. Get reminders when you need to get a new vaccine, when you need to get a preventative screening like a colorectal exam or breast cancer screening. Even get your blood type information. I was shocked to know that three-quarters of Americans can't just immediately tell you what their blood type is. Um, and uh, I guess I shouldn't be shocked because I don't think I could. I'd have to, have to go to some document for that. Um, and even allergy information, you know, so you can't have more information about the medical records of your pets online, which a lot of people do, and get reminders on when they need vaccine boosts and so forth than your own person or family member. So go to DocuVax, get your medical history and records organized. Sign up, DocuVax.com, or get the DocuVax app on your iPhone or Android. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X, DocuVax, for as little as, little as $6.99 per month. You can have all of these medical records organized. You get those doctors on call for you 24 hours a day to validate your tests or explain or give you a reference to another provider. And you can share particular aspects of your medical records using a proprietary QR code-based system that keeps your data secure at all times and doesn't require you to share other information that's irrelevant, like your birth your birth date or your full name or other things when people ask if you're up to date in a particular vaccine. Your medical records do not belong to your insurance company, don't even belong to an individual doctor, and they sure as heck do not belong to the government. So take control of your medical file. Sign up at DocuVax.com. And if you're interested in group discounts for DocuVax, you want to be a sponsor, maybe a small business owner, and you want to give it as a health benefit like a gym membership, call 833-859-1933 for group discounts for DocuVax. That's 833-859-1933. And if you mention that you heard about DocuVax on equal footing, you get an additional discount in your first month free. Operators are standing by. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on I've been Alright, Professor Van Landingham, this show is called Righteous Kill, and we're talking about the complicated ethics of state sanctioned assassination. Of course, brought contempt it's it's a it's a topical issue because of Senator Lindsey Graham's commentary exhorting us to uh, exhorting someone within Russia to kill Vladimir Putin. Sean Hannity is running with it in the press and others. Professor V, I'm wondering what you feel about the, that um, those pre 
war, pre-Pearl Harbor, Harbor exhortations to kill Hitler. How, how can how can we sit here in historical judgment and look unfavorably on that? Well, I don't know who is, right? Because everyone know has the benefit of hindsight as 2020. That's what we don't have right now with, with Russia. Um, and I do want to push back a little bit about the distinction, right? Because we've already gotten pretty messy between what did Lindsey Graham actually say and do? And then the title of your show, which is, you know, righteous kill. And then you said state sanctioned policy of, of, uh, you know, assassinating folks. And so that's the danger of what Lindsey Graham said. He was not Dove Tuzman on a radio show as a private citizen saying someone should go kill Putin, because I think a vast majority of good-thinking, moral people around the world would love to see Putin go, because he's killing children and women and other innocent civilians in Ukraine, right? That's not what we had. We had a sitting state senator make a comment that did not seem to be very well thought out or not one that's appropriate for uh, a senator to make uh, regarding a sitting head of state with whom the United States is playing a very delicate and very dangerous game with a, not, a lot of nuclear weapons aimed each way. The danger is, is though he, even though he pedantically, as you said, uh, you know, pedantic sense called for someone in Russia as Brutus to take out Putin. The danger is, is that Putin and those around him will take that as, as, as U.S. policy that the U.S. is looking at right, because is looking at taking out Putin. And this is why that's so dangerous or why I think that could happen. Look what Putin does. It's these accusations in a mirror. Unfortunately, the things that he accuses other, others of, it's a warning of something he's going to do. That's what folks have been prognosticating about the use of uh, biological or chemical weapons in Ukraine because Russia's accusing and President Putin is accusing the United States of some ludicrous theory of, of uh, developing such weapons in Ukraine itself. Is that actually a hint that that's what he's going to do? So maybe he's afraid because you have a sitting senator talking about throwing out the word assassination and killing of him. He thinks that's a signal of what the U.S. government's going to do. Right. Um, and I'll stop there for a moment, yeah, but me, I do want to go into the U.S. policy. So, you know, there's a couple of, of listener comments that, I, that I'd like to, to get to. One I, I just I smiled at, which is a, a listener just wrote in, I'm ashamed to admit that I like this subject. Um, and I, and I, I am, too. I am, too, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a grand – you probably don't know this, Professor Van Landingham, but I, I am the grandchild, eldest grandchild of Holocaust survivors and – uh, I just, I, when I think of all, I think there were heroes, those who tried to kill Hitler. And it's a little tough to swallow to hear, to you say, oh, well, the hindsight is twenty twenty, Because when Irving Berlin wrote that song, When That Man Is Dead and Gone in 1941, Irving Berlin, of course, was Jewish. There, there was widespread understanding of what was of what was going on already up at that point in 1941, and what Hitler's ultimate ambitions were, and even the the rubric of the final solution. So it isn't really fair to say we didn't know what was going on. The Jews were aware of that, uh, and there were advisors to Roosevelt that were saying that. There's a there's a there's a whole other oh, show to do there. And the United States there. knew, and the United States could have done so much more, and we turned away boats with 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 Jewish. Um, refugees fleeing the horrors of the Holocaust, and we could have done a lot more. What might I meant hindsight is twenty twenty regarding we don't ha- we don't know what would happen right now if if the United States was at involved at all involved or if if Putin died right. And so that's my concern of a state sanctioned policy of 
if the United States takes out Putin, it's well, it could be World War Three. Things could be sure. even worse, and they're already terrible for Ukraine, so it can't get much worse for Ukraine. I don't want to um, go but down that's the, the that's the concern. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of kind of uh, mapping out the probability uh, and, 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 and how things could, could evolve. But it is also troublesome for me, and listeners know this, mentioned a couple times in the show over the last uh, month, month and a half, um, to hear so much hand-wringing about the potential for broader conflict because it is remarkably similar to the hand-wringing that occurred uh, in the White House between 1938 and 1941. Um, and ultimately, if we had gotten involved in the war earlier, I think historians, there's a broad consensus that there would have been uh, really millions of lives, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives saved. Uh, and of course, we didn't get involved until Japan bombed uh, Pearl Harbor. And, you know, it's, it, it's, all, there's always, there's risk to. Yeah, to, but that's to apples and oranges, and that's a false analogy. This is not 1939, 1940. We have nuclear weapons and a huge arsenal pointed and keeping the, the world, keeping the world hostage, holding the world hostage right now. So I'm not going to minimize, um, that actual threat and say, oh, we should just be going in and be doing more and just go ahead and take out Putin. Uh, okay. Um, Sure. I, I, I'm glad I'm not yeah. the one in the White House that has to make yeah. that decision. And so, In a sense, maybe, though, to, to bridge between the, the things that we're both saying here, uh, it reminds me of in A Few Good Men, that Jack Nicholson character, say, you know, you, you basically, you, you, you need me on that wall in, in the sense that, you that, you know, we need that character that, like an Ollie North character, is doing things, coloring outside of the lines, not necessarily within the policy. And, in fact, this comes directly from a listener's comment. This is Rick in Austin. Uh, who, who says, says a couple comments here, but I just read right from the middle. Would it be a good thing to have an, an Oliver North out there somewhere? It seems that these individuals are useful at times like this. It, it, would, would in a sense, I mean, can you, could it be useful to have a rogue actor within the American military or intelligence establishment that really would help an assassination attempt happen or a coup attempt happen in Russia, but outside of kind of something that would would constitute official sanction that we could kind of go through the dance of condemning? I honestly think if the United States thought it could eliminate President Putin and do it cleanly and ensure there wouldn't be the nuclear keys tossed around and play, and, and there wouldn't be an a, absolute instability and horror that followed um, and there wouldn't be World War Three, the United States would probably do it. I think... We're really, I hate to use the phrase dumbing down, but we're really dumbing down the situation. I mean, the United States has some of the best intelligence in the world, and yet, you know, it, it didn't, didn't fully predict what, what just happened in, in February. Um, and so the idea that one person can come riding in and save the day, that's really what folks are looking for. And that's why they're gravitating toward that hero that you mentioned that Angela Merkel had had made it, you know, had, you know, highlighted as a hero in attempting to assassinate Hitler. Um, that's what folks really want. Who can do this? Who can save the day? And they're pinning all their blame on Hitler and or on Putin, and they're failing to realize that, you know, there's a substantial percentage of individuals and citizens of Russia that right now are supporting what Putin is doing. You know, probably I'd like to hope largely because they're being fed a steady diet of misinformation and propaganda. Um, but the situation is more complex than just just Putin. Um, I mean, Putin is a legitimate target in the armed conflict between Ukraine and between Ukraine and and Russia. Um, but right now, the United States is trying to again play the 
uh, go up to the line of, of actual war with Russia by helping um, helping Ukraine and then not but not crossing the line into actually direct armed conflict um, with the nuclear armed Russia. Before we go to our next break, Professor Van Landingham, this is my fault that we didn't actually do some of the grounding here. A, a listener has asked that it, based on the comments that we made earlier, it sounds as if this used to be U.S. policy and it isn't now. Uh, was there a change? So w- was there and when did that happen under U.S. security law or international law or whatever the right turn of phrase is? When did, when did sanction assassination attempts against foreign leaders become illegal in the United States? Well, in 1976, President Gerald Ford signed an executive order uh, prohibiting and making it clear that it was U.S. national policy not to engage in what he called political and wrote in his order political assassination, um, which would be state-sanctioned murder of a of a of a private citizen elsewhere or a public citizen for purposes of you know for political purposes. So it didn't have to be just a, a head of state. Um, for example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, murder of KSM, of, or KSM's murder, well, he's the link to the murder of, um, of, the, of Khashoggi, the journalist, um, was assassination because it was for, it was murder that was allegedly, and it seems to have been corroborated state sections, but for political purposes. So it doesn't have to be another head of state. But yes, it's been U.S. policy, stated national policy that the United States does not engage in. And now it's in the actual executive order. It was, it was reiterated by President Carter and then reiterated again in another executive order by President Ronald Reagan. The term political was dropped in front of assassination, and it just says that it just says assassination. And that was in response to some of the examples that you gave at the very beginning of the show, in particular CIA attempts against uh, 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 Fidel Castro in, in Cuba. And so the United States executive branch felt that it was very destabilizing to have as a as a matter of national policy um, the idea of state sanctioned um, murder for political purposes when the United States is you know, trying to uphold the United Nations Charter in which the United States vows not to use force on the world stage for political purposes. But there's a difference, and this is what I really want to highlight for your listeners, there's a difference between peacetime assassination, state-sanctioned murder, and then when you have the construct of war. And sometimes they may morph and overlap, and that would be if the United States dropped a bomb on the Kremlin tomorrow and killed Putin, we would be at war. So Mm -hmm. no one would be talking about assassination, right? Um, At that point, it's an act of war, and we'd Mm -hmm. be at war with with Russia. Um, And, of course, World, world World War I begins with an assassin's bullet. So it, it's uh... and Archduke Ferdinand, yes, um, of of Serbia, and so so the real concern here isn't isn't dancing, you know, angels on a on a needle uh, on the top of a needle. It really is the policy considerations of what would happen, and that's where there was angst about President or Senator Lindsey Graham's comments. Not mm-hmm. that he didn't articulate things that people, I think, rightfully were feeling of. Oh my God, did someone just get rid of this this evil, evil man who's causing um, just such, such utter human tragedy and is a serial war criminal. But it was the fact that he... Sorry, right. I, I'm sorry it, for interruption. We're, we're gonna we're gonna need to go to our next break, but I, hold that thought on this very complex issue. I will. I'm Professor, sorry. It's okay, Professor Rachel Van Landingham. We're talking about the ethics of assassination, obviously through the prism of the current conflict in Eastern 
Europe. We'll be right back on Equal Funding. Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Back on Equal Footing, call in. Give us your question or comment on the ethics of assassination. Is there such thing as a righteous kill, state-sanctioned? 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. Ask your question live. You can also text question or comment. We've got a couple more for you, Professor Van Landingham, and that's at 917-428-4062. That's 917 917- 4284062 to uh, text in a question or comment. All right. I interrupted you right before the break, Professor. Are you there? Professor V? Okay. You may be on mute. Oh, I'm here. Yeah. You know, uh, unmuting yourself is, is helpful. But I, you know, as riveting of a point I'm sure I was about to make, I, I've lost that bubble. So hopefully we can go to one of your nope. listeners' questions. No problem. Let's, let's, let's do that. Um, so, there. First of all, I just want to give. There's a couple of questions, but I, I like this quote. One one listener wrote in that uh, w- that we should state on the air the Voltaire quote, the the uh, philosopher and writer Voltaire. The best government is a benevolent tyranny tempered by an occasional assassination. Just uh, been asked to read that on the air. Um, all right. So. Uh, question here. Does the professor think that if Biden was poisoned, we would nuke Russia? Well, the United States right now is not engaged in a huge international armed conflict well, in an aggressive war against the neighboring state that, that President Biden has said is, is essential um, to prevent noctification, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a completely different different context. I think the but I, think, I do let's, think let's that the United that the States. Meant, sorry, let's assume the listener meant if Biden were poisoned by the Russian state. I, that's an act of war. I'm not sure what the United States would do at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's another question to the professor: Should assassinations be part of teaching military game theory if assassinations are allowed after a declaration of war? I guess maybe I'm a well, rephrase that. Are, are they? Are yeah, assassinations taught? Well, it depends on what you mean by assassination. Assassination is the term is typically referred to 
you know, uh, if it's state-sanctioned, a state-sanctioned murder, an unlawful killing of a foreign national for political purposes in peacetime. Because that's very different than what occurs during an armed conflict when there are individuals who are made targetable through the laws of war because of their um, belligerent status. Well, that's what the right? question and that said, would though. Include it, it, the head it, of- it, I think the question is asking, it doesn't seem to be a challenge, it's more asking you, you know, given your familiarity at U.S. Central Command, are assassinations taught as part of military game theory after the declaration of war? No. They're, they're no, not. I mean, not as an assassination, no. No, and people, individuals are trained on how do you identify and, dis- and as distinguish individuals who are targetable and who are not targetable, um, which is easier in some conflicts and, and, and harder in others. And so I really don't understand. I mean, when you see military game theory of, you know, what would happen here, you know, there to trigger various events, yes. But military members are, for those that are students of history or engaged in certain, you know, levels, they'll be very familiar with the executive order that prohibits assassination as a matter of national policy. But, again, that's been construed as being separate and distinct from law time targeting authorities as well as self-defensive actions by the United mm-hmm. States. So oh. there can be a, you know, the ban against assassination was not meant to prevent the United States from reacting in self-defense as it rightly should um, when its citizens uh, are, are threatened by, by an actor overseas, right? I, I view that as kind of like a pop-up you know, war um, right there on its face right. versus assassination. I, I do want to acknowledge that a number of listeners, and of course we do have a strong Jewish listenership to this show, have written uh, from different perspectives on uh, folks they see as heroes uh, that um, either tar- targeted assassination of Hitler or even succeeded in, in assassinating um, Nazi officers uh, in, in, in close close to Hitler. Um, one listener uh, writes in, Anna writes in, uh, relatively detailed description about two Czech soldiers that were trained in England that parachuted back into Czechoslovakia to to assassinate the Nazi officer Reinhard Heydrich, who was called the Nazi Butcher of Prague, and that they're considered national heroes in Czech and so forth. And just uh, I don't I want to acknowledge um, this listener and others that have written these these points. I think we all know that that by the time, as as I think Professor Van Landingham has, has helped us understand, once there is a declaration of war, of course, targeting um, the killing of, uh, of, of key military officers and senior commanders is completely within limits. Uh, that's not, that's not a war crime. It doesn't even seem to be that complicated an issue, um, ethically. I also want to acknowledge a, uh, a, a, a listener, um, Moisha, who has, li- who's written us before, um, who wanted to bring a Jewish perspective to this. And I'm going to summarize Moisha. Pardon me if I'm getting this wrong. Um, but uh, makes it clear that as it relates to the trolley example that we talked about at the beginning of the show here, that uh, Talmudic law and Jewish law is very clear about it, that uh, you cannot take any act that kills a person, even if you think you are uh, saving many other lives. It's not your it's not your place to do so and includes Talmudic references and biblical references. Interesting topic for another show. Thank you, Moisha. All right, let's take a caller. On line one. Line one, you're on the air. Good evening. Stan. Hello. It's nice to hear your voice from uh, here being uh, in New York with you. Oh, boy, you sounded like you were sick 
for a little bit uh, before. I think it was just a connection from Dubai. Uh, this was really hard to, to do the show from there. Okay, uh, let's get to the bottom line here. I was in a war. Uh, reality is not what I'm hearing here. Okay, assassination. Let's talk, for example, the state of Israel. It's a business. They do it, and they do it succinctly right. They go after their enemy, whether there is no war or not. Okay? They've done it against specific ISIS members. They've done it against Taliban. Not just Taliban, excuse me, but mostly Arabs. And they don't wait, and they don't worry about if they're Jewish or not. It's about Israel and their enemies, and that's all it's about. And so the Israelis, the Mossad, very quietly can do it and does it all the time. And I'm happy that they do do it. They don't need, they don't need to look in the Bible. They don't need to look anything else. It's about survival of a country. And the United States waves a flag. We salute it. But we do what we have to do to keep the United States survivable. And if that means killing people, even when laws are there, it's done. It has been done by the CIA. They do back uh, regime changes where they kill people. I don't see anything wrong with it because I was in a war. So I think the professor may know most of the legalese, but the reality is if they can take out, Putin won't be taken out by anybody but the but Russians. I think to be fair, first of all, do you have a question? What is there for, to be fair about? Hang on. Do you have a, do you have a question for Professor Van Lanning? Well, I, I, she's, has, she, has she been in the military at all? Has she been uh, a soldier? I, I, I'm going to let her speak for herself, but absolutely. Sure. <laughs> yes. Go ahead, Professor. Go ahead. Yeah. I wore a nation's uniform for 24 years, and I thank you for your for your service too. And I actually don't think there's much daylight between what we had, except for I believe in the rule of law, and I don't consider it legalese. I believe in the rule of law and providing a legal justification for for what our nation's hard for us to call. Putin's a war criminal because there's a crime, because there's law that he's he's violating. So it's hard for us to hold others accountable if we say there is no law that applies. And I would challenge you. I've, I've worked with the wonderful folks at, at, at IDF and the, the, uh, and believe very strongly in Israel's right to, to self-defense. And again, you don't have to wait for a war to engage in the lawful use of force and self-defense, which I mentioned earlier. Um, but I would challenge the idea that the Mossad's just going after anybody. I oh, you, you don't, I know. I know for a fact. Hang on. I know let, for a let, fact. Let the professor finish. But, but regarding targeted killing, for example, and, and the Israeli Supreme Court has, has weighed in on this as, as well. Uh, I mean, at least within the IDF, there's extreme effort made to provide legal basis for all of those for all of those killings, right? And those killings are normally regarded based on self-defense and or um, within an ongoing armed conflict. And that's because there is a fundamental belief that we need to be doing this according to rules. And believe me, the rules allow for and should, because they need to, a lot of killing, right? So what, what we're talking about is something separate and distinct from a lawful killing under either self-defense or the idea of the, the laws of war. Professor, we're talking you... about... State-sanctioned murder. Pardon the interruption. I really appreciate Sans' question because I bet you it's on a lot of listeners' minds. If I understand this correctly, and I'm sorry if I'm dumbing it down, uh, are, are you saying a lot of these IDF killings, and a lot of listeners this show know that their their Mossad and IDF have have targeted individuals outside of of Israel's uh, Israel's borders. Those are in the context of war, so they're doing that with states like Iran and Lebanon, in, with with whom they're in a state of war, and that's the difference. Or not yet, and the non-state armed group, and the state of Israel is at war not 
Uh, I think they're at war with, with Iran and have been for a, a long time and need to be because Iran's trying to eliminate Israel. But with against non-state armed groups that are often sponsored by states like Iran, like Hezbollah, or you know, you have groups. Can I can I interrupt for a ISIS, second here? Et cetera. Can right, I bring something ahead, in so here? One, one, one last well, let me quickly. Let me quickly. Uh, I take great exception to the fact that uh, Putin will never be judged. He will not be in an a, a, a international court. Uh, that's never going to happen. Uh, he will survive because he is what he is, unless the Russians themselves, the military, remove him. Other than that, there will be no international court of justice for this man. Maybe an exemplia, but never. He will never be tried. He will never, because he's, he's a survivor, unless they do it themselves, which may be the right thing. But I doubt very much anything will happen to this man at all. Seriously. I, I appreciate your comments. Thank you. So let's get to that that last comment. I think it brings opens an interesting doorway in a moment, Professor. I want to go back to the, the, the analogy between IDF actions or comparison to IDF actions and, and U.S. actions. You talked about non-state armed groups that they're, with whom they're, a state could be at war. So when we have drone strikes in North Africa or the Middle East where we're attacking the compound of a terrorist, for example, and this has certainly happened um, in, in, in recent memory, and that's U.S., those are U.S. military actions. Isn't that a condoned a state condoned assassination and if, if what, what's the what's the umbrella of war there Who, with whom are we at war when we're sanctioning that assassination attempt well again i wouldn't it depends on the situation i wouldn't call it an assassination i would call it an under the authorization to use military force the current administration just like the previous two three administrations prior um, believe that individuals who are members of a non-state armed group who we are in armed conflict against, and there are numerous ones that are listed by uh, by the executive branch against whom we're in armed conflict, and they share that with, with the Hill, who then continues to fund it. Um, if they are considered members of an armed state armed group with whom we're at war with, then it doesn't matter really where they are at that point if they're if they're uh, continuing a member, right? And so that's the legal basis. Okay. There's both an that's international helpful. law of war legal basis and there's a domestic basis. So, yes. Um, but there can also be a, someone that if the United States believes that they pose an imminent threat to the United, to United States citizens, for example, they're about to attack an embassy, um, they don't have to wait for there to be an authorization to use military force. It's the executive branch's duty, the commander-in-chief's duty to protect that embassy um, and, and use, use armed force. And if they have to, for example, drop a bomb on someone, they would need to to protect that embassy. So that's, that's classic self-defense on the international stage. Okay. Boy, I can, I can, I can uh, hear, I can, I know I'm going to get an email from Moshe in Borough Park who's going to want me to address the story of Sheva ben Bichri and the Bible and the second book of Samuel and the issue of preventative strikes. Not going to go there, Moshe, but thank you for the comments. Look it up, folks. Look up Trolley Problem, uh, Sheva ben Bichri, uh, the second book of Samuel. There's actually a good amount of this in, uh, in Torah. We'll be right back. On equal footing, Professor Rachel Van Landingham, Professor V, retired lieutenant colonel, former judge advocate. Uh, she was in U.S. Central Command. She's been stationed in the Middle East, in South Korea, Italy, United States, foremost expert on this issue. Uh, the complicated ethics of assassination or targeted killing, unless on, on the state-sanctioned side of things, 
We've called this show Righteous Kill, perhaps to Professor V's chagrin, but it's gotten a conversation going. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. We get a lot of questions on the show about the music, and yes, those last two uh, compositions were both either written by or featured uh, Pussy Riot, the wonderful band, protest band out of Russia, who has gone to jail for protesting the totalitarian regime there. Um, also, great band. All right. Equal Footing is also brought to you by Mechanical Art Capital. We haven't talked about Mechanical Art Capital in a little while, but check it out. Are you... Paying attention to what's going on with watch prices and, and the demand for high-end luxury watches, it is bananas. People have collections now. Put aside dealers. I mean, dealers got lots of value in their, in their showcases. But uh, watch collectors now have a ton of value that they could collateralize and use to, uh, you know, whatever, buy, an, buy something else. Um, even finance an improvement in a home or whatever. If you have a bunch of watches, you're a dealer or you're a collector, and they're sitting around, Use that money. Unlock the value of your collection or your inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's buyback contracts. It's super simple. Download the app, Mechanical Art Capital. Yes, type in those three words, Mechanical Art Capital, into your Android or iPhone. Download the app. Snap some pictures of your watches. You get an immediate appraisal, and you get a cash offer of financing. You can get cash in one to two days. Uh, you can also just uh, have that appraisal for insurance purposes or to impress your friends. You can also call 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972 for more information. Uh, operators are standing by. You can also go to the website, mechanicalartcapital.com. Unlock the value of your watch collection or inventory. Mechanical Art Capital. I've been Back on equal footing. Darn, we only have 10 minutes left on this really interesting subject. I love the listener who wrote, I'm ashamed that I'm interested in the subject. <laughs> uh, righteous kill, we've called it. I know, Professor Van Landingham, when I'm saying this, you're probably kind of getting red in the face. It, it's, it's, um, we're, we're talking about... No, I'm not. I was, in the milita- I was in the military. I advised people on the legality of killing. I'm not an ethicist. I'm a lawyer. And I frankly don't think that this is a legal or ethical issue. I mean, I think it's... It's very ethical um, for for um, Mr. Putin to to go. My concern, and that's what it's, I've tried to get across this whole show, this is a policy pragmatic issue of what do we know is going to happen after the death of Mr. Putin, um, and what are the ramifications of the United States if it was taken as a policy statement endorsing assassination as a as a policy. Before so, frankly, we... I think this is really more of a policy call. I... Yeah, and you've taught me that through both through the pregame research and on the show uh, that that really I framed this through an ethical prism at the beginning. It probably was not the right way to do it. Before we get to the what's next question, kind of the Hydra question, and a listener wrote a question, wrote a comment that I think um, will help us uh, frame that. I want to get to the last thing that Stan mentioned. Stan, I love you. I really appreciate your directness always. And it's the point about uh, Putin being a war criminal, Professor Van Landingham. If you have a case where someone has been, um, I guess, tried in absentia or been determined to be a war criminal or is maybe wanted in The Hague 
on charges of being a war criminal. Doesn't that give us the legal basis as the United States or as an alliance like NATO to go and maybe not kill that person, but go and capture that person to bring them to The Hague to stand stand uh, judgment? Well, I mean, that's how folks like Slobodan and Milosevic um, and, and Wadik wound up in the docket at the, at the ICC in The Hague. But again, this isn't a legal issue. There's under Article 51 of the UN Charter, there's the use of force is lawful with, for in self-defense. And there's something called collective self-defense. NATO and the United States could say, we're going to help out our Ukrainian friends and help defend you against Russia and use that as a legal basis to enter into this war. But the idea is that no one wants to go to war because of nuclear weapons and they are afraid of that. Or maybe there are more reasons for not going to war. But again, um, I don't, it's not for lack of legal basis, I think. Um, but yes, yeah, if there was an indictment that was issued under the criminal processes, that you know, there are mechanisms that, um, uh, that would allow for the legality of, of the, of the detention of, of those who received the such indictments. But I agree with, with Stan on that one. I'm not sure that there'll ever be accountability for mm-hmm. Mr. Putin himself, except for the ultimate accountability of, of, of meeting his maker. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't rules and laws out there that the United States is trying to promulgate and support as a rules-based order. Because well, that's Putin's biggest I'm threat. One, I'm one private citizen. I, I thought I would never say anything in agreement with Lindsey Graham uh, and or Sean Hannity, but I am one private citizen who does hope that that someone will close to his inner circle, uh, uh, a Brutus type, will will take action because it it, it it but it pivots on this what's next question, and we need to get to this. You know, we have just a few minutes left. I think a, a listener wrote a really good way of framing this. It, it's the kind of the Hydra question. What if we assassinate Putin and someone worse comes to power, like a Hydra? You kill one head and another pops up. Does that mean the U.S. would need to keep on assassinating people? And I think that's part of what you were getting at, Professor. It's like, like, okay, but but what's what's next? What if we did do that? How do we're not assured that the devil that we're dancing with is any worse than the devil we'd be dancing with after that kill? I mean, all I can say is, is yes. I mean, that's one of the issues. There's also the issue of you know, if if a private Russian citizen engages in some kind of coup attempt and and is successful, I would hope they would bring in a more stable. A regime that's more appreciative and, and in compliance with with the rule of law and and with allowing civil liberties for its citizens, right? Um, but the issue of the United States going in and trying to orchestrate that from the outside with lack of intelligence, et cetera, that you know there is a concern of we don't know what will happen afterwards. Would there be a vacuum? And number two, we are concerned, and I think the United States is rightly concerned of. Going to the United States is trying to stay out of war with Russia, mm-hmm. and so if again, and but I think that's where you're positing of it, and of wow, what if the United States could do it on the down low? Um, it sounds great, right? Um, but could could the United States actually do it? I think if it could have done it, it would have done it, and it would have already would have already occurred. But the danger there is it being the United States act of war, um, well, and it's it, not just. The attempts could be going on. I mean, Putin lives in a right. in a security bubble like like Stalin did and 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 like Hitler did. We also have we only have a few minutes left. And first of all, I don't want to let this show finish. Okay. Professor Van Landingham, former lieutenant colonel, uh, you served as you said you served your country for for twenty four years. 
you now are an academic on these issues of national security law, but you were an officer and you were at headquarters, U.S. Central Command. I want to express my gratitude to you for uh, your service as an individual citizen and and uh, and make sure that everything that I've asked here is framed in uh, in in the context of that gratitude and respect. And with that, I want to ask my last tough toughest question of you. And you know, on equal footing, we try to uh, demonstrate through our own uh, process of, of of learning, my own process, that we can change our minds. That you know, with given given new information that contra that uh, contradicts our point of view, we got to go with the evidence. And what type of evidence would you need to see? What could happen that would change Professor Van Landingham's mind? Uh, you're only going to have a minute really to answer. I'm sorry. That would make you believe yes. We should have a state-sanctioned act uh, to assassinate uh, Putin right here, right now. What would have to happen? Oh, that's that's easy. I want to see facts that we could do it, and it wouldn't cause World War Three, and it would help end the war in Ukraine. Right? If we could do it, we should. I mean, there is a vanishing point of the law, and you know, even though I do think it it would be World War Three in there, friend, I think it would be lawful as an act of collective self-defense. Um, it's really the idea of what could happen next, right? That's, that's the concern. So if it could work, I would love for us. To, I would love for it to happen. Oh, you know, we just, I saw, I know he's, he, he's probably dialing the wrong line, the 917 line instead of 718. We have a former ambassador. Uh, who's dialed into the show before who's on on the line, but unfortunately dialed the nine one seven line and we're out of we're out of time. Professor Rachel Van Landingham, thank you very much for tackling this issue of righteous kill, the ethics of ethics of assassination. We'll see how this plays out. I hope to have you on the show in the future talking about this and other subjects. Yeah, well, really well, well thank you. And I do want to say that I mean Hitler was a bastard and it would have been awesome if that kind of the the atrocities he committed uh, against the Jewish people um, could have been prevented. Um, and if that's what it's going to take for Putin, I'm all for it. But I, I also don't like nuclear weapons pointing our way. Yeah, that's why it's so complex, right? I think as many of our listeners, you know, mm-hmm. look back to a lot of these arguments of, well, but if if we kill the if we kill this leader, a worse one could come into power. And what if we enter a broader conflict? These were many of the arguments that we know from the freedom of information releases and the timely releases over time were made within the White House, within the security apparatus for years uh, for not getting right. involved in World War II and not trying to assassinate Hitler prior to that declaration of war. Thank you, Professor Van Lenningham. We'll see you next week. Yeah.